Welcome to the All In Your Head podcast, where we get all in your head. We are a mental health podcast focused on anything and everything mental health. We will have special guests ranging from mental health experts, mental health advocates, and just everyday people with real struggles. We will share laughs, we will share cries, but most importantly, we will have real conversations about mental health. So with that being said, let's get all in your head. Woohoo! We are doing a performance series for season two of the podcast, and I'm really using my model to inspire a performance to guide the series. So at the bottom of the Spire performance is physical health. Mm -hmm. And how I define physical health is caring for the body through proactive and responsive practices. And so really taking a look at a couple of different things, exercise, diet, sleep, which we're going to talk about today, and then also a relationship with drugs and alcohol. So I'm excited to have you, you're a sleep expert. And I think the sleep aspect gets ignored sometimes. We talk a lot about exercise and diet as it relates to mental health, but we don't always talk about sleep. So who are you (laughs) and what do you do? Well, well, thank you for having me. Um, So I'm Dr. Sarah Silverman, and I am a clinical health psychologist and behavioral sleep medicine specialist. Um, So I like to describe what I do as kind of more of a holistic approach when it comes to sleep. So over the years, I've worked with a lot of different docs, so mostly like neurologists, pulmonologists, and psychiatrists who, you know, will primarily see their area of specialty, but that are also, you know, more sleep uh, sleep inclined or sleep specialist, and then would mm-hmm. refer to me for more of the non-medication side of things. Mm-hmm. So I guess in a nutshell, you could say that I like to get folks off of medication that often gets prescribed for sleep issues. While my background is in um, clinical health psychology right now, I am in private practice and all I really see is sleep disorders and, and um, especially insomnia, but I see wide variety of sleep disorders. So for example, folks who have sleep apnea, maybe who are struggling using their CPAP machine, folks who have chronic nightmares, folks who have Mm -hmm. narcolepsy or hypersomnia, folks who have insomnia, which is probably the the, the most common, um, and then restless legs as well, and also circadian rhythm disorders. So folks who are shift workers, who may be chronic travelers and have jet lag all the time, things like that. Um, So a wide variety of different sleep disorders, but then I intervene for more of that holistic non-medication side. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about the non-medication side. I'm curious about your opinions about medication and some of these other ways that people help us sleep. Before we do that, I'm just curious, how do you get into this field in the first place? Great question, because (laughs) it's something I get asked all the time. Like A lot of people don't know that there are actually sleep psychologists or psychologists who specialize Mm -hmm. in the behavioral sleep medicine side of things. So I actually knew very early on when I decided that I wanted to become a psychologist that I really wanted to focus on sleep because it's something that of course is universal. All humans do it. We spend a third of our lives doing it. And once I found out that there was such a specialty as sleep psychology and how few sleep psychologists there are in the world, less than 500, to my knowledge. <laughs> um, I was like, wow, this is this is an area that is in 
incredible demand and so needed because millions of people are struggling. So I guess the short answer to that is going through a typical graduate school program, becoming a psychologist, but then having specialized training in sleep medicine and behavioral sleep medicine. And I completed um, a very extensive fellowship in just sleep medicine. So I knew I was uh, very passionate about this and just kind of prioritized sleep medicine throughout my training. It's really interesting. Let me ask you this. You're out at a party and you always get that question. Hey, what do you do? How do you answer that question? (laughs) So I, while I am a clinical psychologist, I answer that question with I'm a holistic sleep doctor because I think that that captures more of what I do since sleep is my primary specialty. And I think that that helps capture what uh, my approach is. Yeah, I'm in the mental health space and I'm a therapist. And so that obviously leads to a lot of conversations. Yeah. What's usually the the follow-up questions when you tell people what you do? I get, I would say probably the most common is, oh my gosh, I've been on Ambien for decades. Mm. Can you get me off of it? <laughs> um, yeah, or something of that nature. Like, oh, I'm taking melatonin. What do you think about mm. melatonin? you know, things of that nature. So kind of asking me about my thoughts on medication and supplements, or, you know, they'll say, oh my gosh, like I've been having so many issues falling asleep. How do I get to sleep? How do I get back to sleep? You know, all, all of those. Yeah. Kinds of things. So basically they're looking for some free advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get, yeah. I get a little bit of that too. Asking for some free advice. People don't really want to talk about mental health problems at parties though, or, or when you're out. So I don't, I don't get too much of it. I usually get the yeah that must be so rewarding what you do. And then we just kind of quickly move on to another conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So how do you help people? Uh, That's kind of the magic question, right? And and maybe we even back it up even further because I think people need to identify when they need help in the first place. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's fairly obvious answer when you're struggling with your sleep, but you know, there's probably people who struggle with their sleep for a long time and just tried a lot of different things. And as you were saying, there's a lot of people who just take medication and or self-medicate in other ways. And so when might someone want to seek help in the first place? Yeah. So while I would say this, of course, looks a little bit different for everyone, some classic signs that I would pay attention to or look out for are going to be things like Difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up too early or earlier than desired, feeling like you're not getting good quality sleep or non-restorative sleep. Like even after sleeping a full night, just waking up feeling like, oh, I feel like I didn't sleep well or, you know, not feeling rested. I would say one of the biggest things is noticing changes to how you function during the day and specifically like Um, your cognitive abilities. So things like being able to concentrate, pay attention, remember things, also your emotional or mental health, noticing um, that maybe you are feeling a little bit more down or more anxious. You know, of course, there's a spectrum of things on, on that side, but noticing changes to how you're managing stress and how you're managing your mental health. Um, And then also mood changes as well. So if you're noticing that you're more cranky or irritable, after a poor night of sleep, who isn't cranky, right? right? But noticing these things happening on a regular basis. So more than three nights a week for, you know, I would say a couple months or more. So 
specifically if we're talking insomnia, it's three or more nights every week for three months or longer. But really, if you're noticing any of those classic signs where you're just having trouble falling, staying asleep, things don't feel restorative, you're noticing changes during the day, impacting your functioning, you're snoring, that's another big one too, or you're actually waking yourself up from snoring, those are going to be some classic signs that it is time to seek help. And certainly, you know, talk with your doctor about some of these things. And the tough part here is that most medical doctors do not get any training in sleep medicine during medical school. Um, I think the average is like one to two hours of sleep training. So maybe like a course or some lecture, you know, every now and then, but they really don't get trained in it. So it isn't often something that docs are even asking about. So I always tell folks, like, I encourage you to speak up if you are noticing any of these classic signs, because chances are your doctor may not even ask you about them. And there are many things that you can do to not only improve the quality of your sleep, but potentially the quantity as well. Do you recommend a minimum number of hours for people or do you feel like it's more individualized? It is individualized. (laughs) And I love this question because there's so much emphasis in the media, especially on, you know, adults getting eight hours of sleep. The average adult, you know, sleeps anywhere from seven to nine hours. So eight is the average of that. But there's actually a really wide spectrum of the number of hours of sleep that someone may need. And that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, And there's different areas of folks who, you know, firmly believe that most adults should be getting between seven to nine hours. And then there are folks who take a little bit of a more flexible approach. And I would say I fall into that pool. So what we know is, you know, anywhere from potentially five to 11 hours may actually be considered uh, normal for for folks. So it truly is individualized. And that can even change within the same person over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. When someone recognizes that they have sleep challenges, and they start receiving services from someone like you, how do you typically help people? So of course, first, there is a thorough evaluation just to kind of get a background of what's going on. So I really dive into sleep habits, sleep environment, sleep schedule, and of course, things that are that someone might be doing during the day. So specifically, how much light exposure someone might get when they're eating, things that they're eating as well can make it a difference, you know, when they're moving or exercising. So kind of go into a a really detailed history. And then depending on, you know, what someone's goals are for improving their sleep, I primarily help folks with one of the first line treatments for insomnia, which is called cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia Mm -hmm. or CBTI for short. So that is umbrella term for many different components involved in that treatment. And because sleep is so unique and individualized, I then personalized this treatment depending on what the most primary concern is when it comes to someone's sleep. For example, some of the components of CBTI include relaxation training, so learning specific breathing techniques, meditation techniques. And because everyone is so unique in that department as well, you know, I really tried to 
tailor some of those exercises to make them very doable and realistic for each person. And then there are some other behavioral components and cognitive components of focusing on thoughts and behaviors around sleep that then I specifically personalize to each person that I work with, just depending on their unique biology. You know, when it comes to sleep, their sleep schedule is different. Their, you know, biology is different. And it is also interesting to see how each person's preference for things in terms of, you know, their sleep environment and what they do before bed is so different as well. So there isn't a one size fits all approach to helping someone. And it truly is kind of diving into their history, learning what's going on, figuring out what their goals are, and then really tailoring the treatment towards that unique individual. How quickly do people see results sometimes? I mean, I imagine sometimes it's it's very quick. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but how quickly have you seen it work? It can be very quick. I would say probably the average is usually three months or so. Um, So in the grand scheme of things, it is relatively short term, but Mm -hmm. I have seen folks who will start the treatment dive into the strategies and see improvement in as little as a couple weeks. And then there are some folks who maybe have been on sleep medication for a long time. So that might take a little bit longer, but I'd say generally it's a couple months for most folks and feeling pretty confident in the strategies. We started talking earlier about some of these sleep aids, and this is a topic I'm very intrigued by. There are natural, using air quotes, interventions to sleeping, such as melatonin as an example. Mm-hmm. And I've also seen, you know, you talked about Ambien. I've also seen even psychotropics like Seroquel being prescribed for sleeps, especially like in jails and in, in yeah. treatment centers and different things like that. How do you feel about both those natural interventions and also some of those psychotropic interventions? So from my background, I would love for people to be able to sleep without anything because Mm -hmm. sleep is natural. Sleep is a biological process. But on the the other side of this, you know, I actually view medication or supplements as a tool. They are tools that can potentially be helpful for folks who are experiencing severe sleep issues and who are really struggling sleep medications and supplements are, well, I should say they're intended for short-term use. So getting someone through, say, a crisis or a stressful time. Say what ends up happening for a lot of folks is, you know, they'll start out using them on a short-term basis and then end up staying on them because, you know, for a lot of folks, they do provide relief or they build up dependence to the medication, whether physiological or psychological or both. And so while I do believe that there is a a benefit to taking them on a short-term basis, it can be tough to come off and certainly not the best long-term solution from my perspective. So I, the way that I like to talk about medication or, or supplements with my clients is they're neither good nor bad. They're a tool that can be helpful on a short-term basis, but the goal is to be able to come off of them and to learn long-term solutions that you can use truly for the rest of your life, knowing that you have some 
some other behavioral tools to get you back on track. Um, so certainly could see them being useful for many folks, but ultimately not the best long-term solution. I just don't like it when people don't have options. They're not provided the options, right? They're, huh. they're given just one tool. I think people should just be educated and have the variety of options available to them and then allow them to make a choice. Absolutely. I agree with you. I'm all about options as well. So I think it's important that every person does have an option, whether that does mean medication or supplements or going more of the holistic natural route as well. Options are important. And, you know, with that as well, I mean, there have been, you know, many folks that I've worked with over the years who, you know, come to me because they do want to come off of their sleep aid or sleep medication but we find that they're going through an incredibly stressful time or it just isn't say like the best time to try to come off of a medication because there are some effects with, you know, weaning off a medication, potential for side effects and withdrawal and things like that. So, you know, we decide like, well, sure, we, we know that this isn't the best long-term solution. Let's stay on it for a little bit longer until things kind of settle. Truly does depend on the person, but I, I do believe that there's a time and a place for sleep aids. And sleep has such an impact on mental health. I'm a therapist and I'm a good therapist, but I, I'm, not, I'm not that good. <laughs> so if someone isn't sleeping, you know, it's only so much I can do. Uh, yeah. It has such a tremendous impact on mood, irritability, mm-hmm. even de- symptoms of depression, anxiety, all types of symptoms. And so that's why I'm so happy to be having this conversation because it has such an effect on people. You know, as a mental health provider, I have some tools for people, but it, it only goes so far. And so I'm glad that we have experts like you that can help people. Yeah, thank you. It is something where absolutely, you know, sleep, if if sleep is all over the place or if someone's really struggling with their sleep, it can make it really challenging to improve depression symptoms, to improve anxiety. And there is actually some data that tells us, you know, when someone specifically targets their sleep and gets their sleep problems treated, that in and of itself can reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. So for that reason, of course, I'm biased, but I truly believe that, you know, sleep is the foundation. And that is something that all of us should be prioritizing so that we do have good mental health. And of course, sometimes that's very much easier said than done for various reasons, but sleep is the foundation of health, in my opinion, not just a pillar of health, but the actual foundation. And just along those lines, I actually recently read about a study, over a thousand people who were studied when it comes to their sleep quality and sleep quantity and their diet and exercise. And interestingly enough, sleep quality was the biggest predictor of depression Mm. sleep quality followed by sleep quantity and then after sleep quality and quantity then came diet and exercise so sleep quality being the the number one biggest predictor of depressive symptoms and then you know diet and exercise followed yeah and i i believe that sleep is the foundation as well and that's why it's at the bottom of the spire performance the foundation along with exercise and diet and all those things i didn't realize i I knew sleep was important but according to the research you just cited it's potentially the most important so that's that's really interesting yeah i agree 
So you agreed to provide some free advice for people, and I certainly appreciate that because your time is valuable, your resources are valuable to folks. And so just thinking about sleep in general, and you know, we have a general audience that listens to this podcast, what are maybe some challenges that you see that are common? And then also, what are some quick advice or some pointers that you can give people that will improve their quality of sleep? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd say some of the biggest challenges that I see are difficulty falling asleep and difficulty staying asleep. Those are probably top two. Mm. And along those lines, I would say just to add a a third would be snoring. Or, you know, some people don't realize they're snoring, so their partner is complaining of them Mm -hmm. snoring. So, So snoring is in the picture. I was actually, you know, during my training, I was actually told by one of the very well-known doctors who works in the sleep apnea space who would always used to tell folks, you know, snoring is never normal. Snoring is a sign that there's something going on. So it is worth getting an evaluation or getting looked at. Even if the person doesn't realize it, their their sleep quality is not the best that it could be if there's any type of snoring in the picture, especially if it's happening on a regular basis. So those would, I would say, top three, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, and snoring. Let me ask a follow-up question on that just real quick, because we're talking about the the what. I also want to address the why. Why do people have difficulty falling asleep? Why are they waking up in the middle of the night? I'm assuming it's a habit, and it's a, it's a habit that's not helping them. And so why is this happening? For a number of different reasons, of course. I mean, and everyone's unique here. I'd say some of the most common reasons for why this might be happening. One of the biggest is stress Mm -hmm. or anxiety. Stress plays a huge role when it comes to sleep. And, you know, specifically with having difficulty falling or staying asleep, you know, as I like to describe it to folks, our brains are hardwired to keep us safe. So Mm -hmm. if you're stressed about something, your brain isn't going to want you to be asleep. That doesn't make sense from a survival standpoint. So your brain says, oh, I'm stressed about something. I need to stay awake and alert so I can deal with this stress and get back to safety, so to speak. So stress is is a huge one, anxiety. I would say having another sleep disorder in the picture is something that's undiagnosed. So for example, like sleep apnea or just snoring on the spectrum of sleep disordered breathing, that can definitely cause or contribute to difficulty falling or staying asleep. Another common sleep disorder is restless legs. So Mm -hmm. folks who have like creepy crawly sensation before bed, either in their arms or legs or both, that can often get in the way of sleep. Um, Pain is another big one. So especially chronic pain, that is a huge sleep disruptor that can certainly affect sleep quality and quantity. And then of course, things that someone might be doing before bed. So what they eat before bed, how close to bedtime that is, whether they're consuming alcohol or other substances before bed, their light exposure before bed, you know, are they staring at screens, which I actually screen wise take a little bit of a more flexible approach, because I actually think you can make screens work for you for a lot of Mm -hmm. folks, you know, watching a good show or something before bed can be helpful. So I think it's more about what you're doing on screens before bed that can make a a difference, but that certainly plays a role in being able to fall asleep and stay asleep. And then 
things like, you know, along the lines of, of what you might be eating before bed. So something that is, you know, more on the heavier side or spicy, something that your body's going to want to focus on digesting mm-hmm. that can often get in the way of sleep as well. So daily habits can definitely make a difference. Underlying sleep disorders, stress, anxiety, I would say really anything that might influence both a quality and quantity of sleep. For most of us, it's the actual things you're doing during the day that might make a difference. That gives us a really good understanding of the problem, right? Why this might be happening. What are some things that people can do? And I'm thinking about just really quick, easy things that people can do, slight adjustments that make a big difference, right? So what's your Mm -hmm. advice on that? couple really great things that your listeners can implement right away. So one of the best things to do, not only for your sleep, but also your circadian rhythm. So your internal body clock is to strengthen your circadian rhythm. And the way that we do that is by waking up at the same time every day. So that is my number one go-to best way to not only regulate your sleep, but also your circadian rhythm. Waking up at the same time every day means seven out of seven days. So I guess <laughs> weekends and non-work days, which I know is not fun. But once you get in the habit of doing that, it does get easier. And that truly is one of the best things to start with. And then alongside waking up at the same time every day, getting natural light exposure within the first 30 to 60 minutes after you wake up, ideally within the first 30 minutes, if that's possible. So this is tough, of course, for folks who, you know, live in areas right now, especially during the winter, they don't see the sun as much, you know, maybe it's it's cold out. Natural light is truly the most effective when it comes to regulating our sleep and regulating the hormones that are involved in the process of sleep. But if you are not able to get natural light, then there are artificial lamps that you can purchase that are a second best. Um, so Natural light within the first 30 minutes or so for about 10 to 15 minutes, if it's sunny, if it's cloudy or overcast, it still is important to get that natural light, but you want to increase the time. So 20, 30 minutes, give or take. And I've heard a lot about the light and and light exposure, even for depression as uh, Mm -hmm. something that helps with depression. What is it about that first 30 minutes? I've, I've never heard it put that way. I've heard, hey, get light throughout the day. Your brain needs to understand that this is awake time from a biological clock perspective. What is it about that first 30 minutes? Yeah, fantastic question. So when it comes to regulating our circadian rhythm, timing is everything. So in theory, if you can get your natural light exposure at the same time each morning, so waking up at the same time and then getting that light within 30 minutes, you send the right light signals to the master clock in the brain, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Uh, I like to call it the master clock, the master pacemaker. You send the right signals to that master clock to set the, the ball in motion for really all of your many circadian rhythms throughout your body. Um, because sleep, our sleep-wake circadian rhythm is one of the biggest rhythms, but we have a ton of rhythms, you know, eating, fasting, rest activity. Those are the other two big ones. And all of our organs have their own rhythms. So the timing in which you get your light each morning helps regulate all of those many rhythms and processes for the day. And there's also 
in importance when it comes to the specific hormones that regulate sleep, so cortisol and melatonin. So in theory, if you get your light within that 30-minute window after you wake up in the morning and you keep that consistent every day, you communicate to your brain when you should be creating and releasing your own production of melatonin every night. So it helps regulate that cortisol melatonin pattern. So cortisol wakes us up in the morning and we get our sunlight. The sunlight essentially cuts off that melatonin that was released during the night. And then the, the cycle, of course, repeats melatonin in our own systems gets released about two hours before we fall asleep at night. And then cortisol is what wakes us up. So sunlight helps regulate that pattern. Thank you, Dr. Sarah. You've got a wealth of information as it relates to sleep. How can people find out more? One of the best places to find just information about behavioral sleep medicine is going to be the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, and they're at behavioralsleep.org. And in addition to that, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine also has some, some great information about behavioral sleep medicine and insomnia treatment and things of that nature. There's also directories on those sites that folks can, you can actually put in where you're located, your state, and there'll be a list of providers that are more local to you. So you can, you know, search based on your area and hopefully find someone who is close to you. Like I alluded to a little bit earlier, there aren't many of us. So sometimes it can be hard to find, you know, a, a true specialist, but the, the number is growing. And then specific to me and my services. So I'm actually at Dr. Sarah Sleep on most social platforms and probably the most active on Instagram. So at Dr. Sarah Sleep, and I do also give out a lot of advice when it comes to, to sleep, or just, I would say, ways to improve sleep quality that folks can, can find out there. And um, I also do share a lot of these resources as well and connect folks to specialists in their area. The sleep community is really small. So, you know, if I'm not able to help someone because I'm licensed in Florida and New York, chances are I know someone who knows someone and I can connect folks to someone that's local. Dr. Sarah, this has been very valuable. I appreciate the time that you spent with us. You're helping a lot of people. It's great that you're even providing helpful pointers on social media and, and different ways that people can connect with you. So thanks for all that you do and keep up all the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You have just listened to the All In Your Head podcast. Learn more by following Jamie Glick on LinkedIn or by subscribing to the Mental Health Training Camp YouTube channel. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call now or text 988 to get connected to free confidential support. Thanks for listening.